Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. It is Wednesday, October the 16th, 2019. You're listening to Morning with Carmen. Welcome. Okay, so there's uh, any number of headlines that we could lead with this morning. I, I, I'm I, choosing to lead with this because I'm willing to bet uh, this is not a story you've even heard about. So there's a family of seven discovered living in the cellar of a Dutch farm. They have been waiting in that cellar of this Dutch farm in the Netherlands for seven years, waiting for the world to end. Well, I actually don't know that they've been there seven years. Maybe better scan this a little more closely. Seven of them have been waiting a number of years in the cellar of this uh, farm, uh, 58-year-old man who does not want to cooperate with the investigation, not surprisingly, uh, after he was arrested for basically keeping his family hostage. Oh, nine years. Nine years. See, I I knew it was a lot of years. Uh, They have been uh, in this cellar of this farm for nine years. Why? Well, they're waiting for the world to end. So here's what I want to say to Christians today. Um, We are not supposed to live in fear or hunker down, or hide ourselves away from the world. That That is not our calling. Um, and while certainly we take care for ourselves and, and we prepare to take care of others uh, in times of difficulty, we don't close ourselves off to the world. This is the world that God so loves. This is the world that God created. This is the world into which God deploys us. Here we are witnesses. Uh, we're not supposed to be lights under a bushel or people in a basement. We are supposed to be lights that are shining in every perverse generation. That's exactly right. Today is the day that uh, that the Lord has made, and today is the day of salvation. And the only way that other people are going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and understand the 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 gospel reality in which we live in the universe, the gospel universe in which we inhabit, is if those of us who know the gospel, are actively out there being what I describe as shiny. So there you go. Here's my here's my uh, consideration for the day. Do not live as a light under a basket, a bushel, or in a basement. Instead, go be shiny. Paul puts it this way. This is from Philippians chapter 2. Become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in, yes, a warped and crooked generation. Then you will do what? Will shine among them like stars in the sky. As you do what? Hold firmly to the word of life. So we're going to extend the word of life to other people. We're going to show it forth. We're going to be shiny. Peter puts it this way, in case you don't like Paul. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That that what? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Therefore, Peter goes on to say, live such good lives among the pagans. Pagans, yes, in fact, yes, indeed. 
Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And and if you say, "Mm, that's Paul and that's Peter, what about Jesus? Well, Jesus puts it this way. Let your light so shine before others that they would see your good works and glorify God. Yes, indeed, my friends. Today's the day. You and I called to go be shiny. All right, one of my shiny friends is up next. Peter Kapsner is in the wings. He and I are going to talk about a few more of the 50 Shades of Truth. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I know you want to talk about uh, the family in the Netherlands, but uh, you will have to resist that temptation. Absolutely. There is enough to cover. That is for sure. You know, but Carmen, (laughs) I've been called many things, most of which are fair in my life. But shiny friend is a new one to me. So I'm gonna have to think about that one for a bit. Yeah, shiny friend. You need a you need a business card, man. There you go. I do. I do. Carmen, one of Carmen's shiny friends. Okay, so. Um, uh, as a friend, I know that last Thursday night, you, um, you actually did something that was a little bit out of your Thursday night routine. Tell people what you did on Thursday night and what were the impressions that you had at that event? Yeah, there's probably a lot to get to, but uh, for those of us in the Midwest, we're pretty familiar with the idea that the president was coming to town for sort of the first rally in, in quite some time. And so I secured a press pass to go down to the rally at Target Center in Minneapolis and, uh, stood about 40 feet away from the president and the vice president just to their left um, around the press pass area and uh, saw quite a bit of what you think you might see and, and uh, much more during that probably two and a half hour rally or whatever it turned out to be. It was it was pretty amazing time to, to be a part of something like that. All right. Let's talk about, um, you know, some of the off air interactions you had. You were in a press area. And so um, what you know, maybe what were some of your encounters or observations in the space that you were roaming around in? Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating thing was to watch, and I was right next to Jim Acosta, and then uh, I didn't recognize the Fox News correspondent, but I think one of the more fascinating things between watching uh, Acosta of CNN and Fox News correspondent is how they were sort of chatting amiably all throughout the night. They seemed to be great friends. Clearly, they travel and follow the president in this way. And so you get this uh, perspective, don't you, Carmen, when you watch the news that there's no chance that uh, Fox News correspondents and CNN correspondents would want to share any kind of space. And yet they, they really seem to be best friends. And then they'd go on the air. And I don't know exactly what was being said, but, you know, like you, I've watched enough CNN and Fox News in my life to know that they were each looking at the same event and then shaping the perception of that event through language, through the kind of clips they would choose, through the things on which they would focus to really be bent towards their audience. And of course, CNN almost treats the the president as if he is, you know, part of the spiritual darkness. And of course, uh, Fox News often like he's a savior and being at the event Of course, he's neither of those things, Uh, but the way the news shapes public opinion, I I wouldn't ever use the term uh, fake news, but I would say, and having been a journalist and having covered the the NBA for as long as I did, when I had to distill down a two and a half hour basketball game for the audience in maybe a 750, 1000 word article, there's only certain things you can choose from out of that two and a half hours to paint a picture of what happened there. 
And I was keenly aware at all times that through the simple choice of words, through the quotes that I would pick, that I could make the Minnesota Timberwolves sound like they were a team really on the rise with a bright future and a hope, or I could make them sound like they don't really know what they're doing and uh, they're kind of in turmoil and disarray and uh, really don't pay attention to them. And that's what I witnessed at that event was uh, how much the news is really geared towards shaping perspective for their audience. And it's mostly to drive clicks and, and money so often, but just fascinating to see the on-air, off-air stuff between them. Okay. And the other thing that you, um, that you shared with me uh, was that there was actually this like spiritual feel to what was going yeah. on there. Um, talk about that. Yeah. You texted me during the event and just, and you asked that question, how, how did it feel in there? And that was maybe the most mesmerizing part of it uh, was watching people you know, I've been to church, many church services over the years, and, and when God's Spirit begins to move and flow, there's really a tangible sense of it, and, and you can sense almost an energy throughout the congregation that's happening often in worship, and there is kind of this interesting masquerading energy, because for many, I don't think it is an overstatement to say, and it was packed out, 20,000 people, and for many of them, you know, President Trump really does represent a, sort of a spiritual figure that is in the gap between them and all that is evil, and and I watched, for example, during the national anthem, for which I have tremendous respect, uh, the national anthem, but to watch a woman close her eyes and sort of raise her hands as if she's singing a song in worship. And, and that vibe was being repeated over and over again in the things that I observed. And, and so that's what I texted back to you and, and continue to take in all throughout the evening was the idea that for many, this like is masquerading as a spiritual event, and it's an earthly kingdom we're talking about here. And boy, I could have watched that kind of dynamic all night long. Well, and again, I think there's a there's a good parallel there between the way we see people uh, behave and interact at sporting events. Like there's there's all of yes. that is kind of wound up together. You should probably write a commentary about that. Okay, so um, that's Peter's assignment. Um, Peter I'll, put it on, actually... I'll put it on Twitter for you, Carmen. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> okay, so um, you can't follow Peter Kapsner on Twitter. He's not there. Not yet. Um, when it's Peter coming. and I it's have coming. to take, oh, my shiny friend and I have to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we are going to talk about what some other people were doing last Thursday night uh, who were not at the rally in Minneapolis for the president of the United States, but instead want to be the president of the United States. The Democratic candidates for the presidency last Thursday night were engaged uh, with CNN in what was called the Equality Town Hall. We're going to talk about um, some of the outcomes of that event next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, I'm going to uh, start a conversation with Peter Kapsner here about the CNN Equality Town Hall that took place on Thursday night. And this is actually a subject matter that I'm going to return to in several conversations with lots of guests over the next several days. Why? Because uh, there probably has not been in my lifetime one event where um, such a an obvious stake was put in the ground in terms of uh, now what I would describe as total open warfare between um, people who understand the First Amendment to mean that people of religious conviction are protected against the uh, the compulsion by the government to be forced to believe something and therefore act in a particular way, um, and those who believe that um, sexual rights, not guaranteed in the Constitution, by the way, but sexual rights now asserted, sexual identities now asserted, absolutely trump those religious liberties. And so um, we're going to jump into that. So there was an exchange between Don Lemon and Beto O'Rourke that went like this. Don Lemon said, 
This is from, and he's speaking here to Beto O'Rourke, a candidate for uh, the Democratic nomination for the presidency. This is from your LGBTQ plan. This is what you wrote, quote, freedom of religion is a fundamental right, but it should not be used to discriminate. Don Lemon then asks, do you think religious institutions like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this list slowly, colleges, churches, charities, should they lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? O'Rourke, without missing a beat or drawing a breath, answered yes. Peter, your thoughts. Yeah, boy. You know, there's a lot of different directions we could go with this, Carmen. Um, and, and just referring back to the Trump rally for just a minute last week, I think there is worthwhile conversations to be had. And this is going to frame the upcoming election, I think, more than anything, uh, is the idea of are we going to be a country that is going to respect freedoms moving forward? Are we going to be a country that is going to be increasingly controlled by mandates from the government? And and I don't think that is an unfair way to frame the next election. But uh, what I will say related to this is it's these kind of things, Carmen, when they're broadcast around the country like this, and you have political leaders standing up and saying the things that that they do, in which that what was once shocking and so different becomes sort of normal and mainstream. And it's a pattern you can trace in sexuality for the last 50 or 60 years. And I, and I was just at a church this last weekend doing that very work with a men's group around the idea of, so when did pornography go from shocking to sort of normal? When did premarital sexuality go from shocking to normal? When did safe sex in schools go from shocking to normal? And all of these sorts of things. And if you just rewind yourself 15, 20 years, what was how differently we saw the world. Well, it's events like these that really, truly do shape how we see the world. And when you read the, the comments of one candidate after another, starting with O'Rourke, like you mentioned, that is how that's when you begin to see it happen. And you, you can't walk away unaffected by those kind of town hall events that CNN does unless you're really critically thinking about them. It's too easy to just sort of get swept away. And all of a sudden it becomes normal to use different pronouns for yourself. It becomes normal to wonder about whether there should be tax exemptions for religious institutions, all of these ideas. Uh, and uh, let's talk about the breathless pace at which this has happened. Uh, the Obergefell yeah. decision by the U.S. Supreme Court was only in July, uh, June of 2015. So we're only talking about four years ago. When, right. um, when Barack Obama ran for president, he ran uh, very clearly as a person who did not support same-sex marriage. Um, and so yeah. we we are talking about um, a pace of change in the culture where we have moved from um, it is uh, it's not it's not only that it's not legal, it's not regarded as moral to now. If you don't support it, you are viewed as as so aberrant as to uh, not, you know, well, you're not even worthy of marriage was basically what Elizabeth Warren said. Absolutely. Yeah, those were stunning comments about that idea. And, and the way the question was even framed for her, it was uh, Chris Como asking the question, what if somebody came up and said to you, Senator Warren, I'm old fashioned and my faith teaches me that marriage is between one woman, uh, one man and one woman. What is your response? And I just think that that's old fashioned. That's, you know, 2010 years of history since the time of Jesus and plus way before all of that. Uh, when did that become quaint to think that way when, you know, almost the entire world and every significant religious pattern in this world has always taught that. Uh, when did we become so enlightened and so sophisticated that we figured out something different and then how quickly that's gone? But it's pretty interesting, Carmen. There's two things I think to watch for in the, in the LGBTQ movement moving forward. And I just want to just pause for a second and say, if people are confused and trying to figure out what to do with their families and their children and, and just moving forward, 
that that would make the most amount of sense. And if so much sympathy for the confusion because of the breakneck speed at which these things have moved and the confusing stuff and the people we love, we're all being deeply impacted. And, and But at the same time, moving forward, I think the two things we need to look for is there is an increasing sort of fissure in the LGBTQ movement because people who are advocating for, tra for gender transition and for gender dysphoria are often saying things like there is no such thing as actual gender. But if you're going to be in a gay relationship, you're appealing to the idea that there actually is gender. You're two men or you're two women. And so there already is a, is a pretty profound anthropological difference happening that's creating tension in the community itself. But the other thing that's more compelling to me is even seeing some of my students, we talked about it in this last class a couple of days ago, that increasingly young people are going back that have transitioned. They're going back to the clinics and they want to transition back because it's not resolving what they thought it would resolve. The, the empty promises and the false hopes that if they could just in their own mind, align their sense of gender internally with their biological sex, that would fix the anxiety, depression, turmoil that they're feeling on the inside. And actually, almost every stat is bearing out that it's making that anxiety, depression, turmoil worse for most people. And kids by the hundreds are starting to come back to clinics. So I think it's interesting, and, and you and I have talked about this before, that the church's role, in, in my opinion, in all of this, I wouldn't teach this as gospel truth, but I find it hard to have a voice in the culture to change the momentum of the culture right now. But the church really does have an opportunity to get its own spiritual house and sexual house in order over the next few years. So if this does implode like it might, uh, it'll be a place that will be a place of welcome and hope uh, and, and open arms and brace to sort of help pick up the pieces of all of this stuff. So... Uh... I do think that it's hard for people to pay attention to everything that is going on in um, in the world today, certainly, but even right here in our own country in relationship to these conversations about sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, I, I do think that those who are listening who are in positions of leadership of any kind and any yeah. kind of um, distinctively authentically Christian or, frankly, distinctively um, authentically Muslim organization – uh, school, learning center, outreach, church, um, you know, here's the reality. Th this is a conversation you have to pay attention to. Um, sure. that, that which you thought will absolutely never happen, um, serious candidates for the presidency of the United States um, absolutely have in mind that, uh, that those of us who uphold the faith once delivered, this isn't about my faith. This isn't about what my faith teaches me. This is about the faith once delivered to the saints and what it teaches about marriage. And for those of us who uh, hold fast to those teachings, um, you know, there's just, just absolutely open threat uh, that the government will use its coercive power um, to force us. Sure. I, it's 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 really stunning and staggering. All right, Peter, you and I have to leave it right there. Um, thank you so much. We will talk again next week. Peter Kapsner with our Fifty Shades of Truth. Thank you, my friend. Shiny. Yeah, friend. I love it, Carmen. Love it. Go be shiny. I will definitely do that. I'll, I'll polish up my head today. All right, we'll be right back. All right, I I just. So many things that I would love to have the opportunity to uh, talk about today. And so um, Hunter Baker is going to be with us. We're going to give uh, a little bit of an impeachment update. We're going to talk about why from a Christian worldview it's actually important for us to 
care about the truth and um, and consider consider the truth and it's what it demands of us. Uh, and then we are going to talk a little bit about the Democratic debate last night in Westerville, Ohio. And then I'm going to return to the CNN Equality Town Hall last Thursday night um, with some follow-up questions for Hunter, uh, it, just, just in a follow-on to the conversation we just had with Peter. So all of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If your house was on fire and you just had five seconds to grab a few things, what would they be? Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. After making sure my kids were safe, I'd grab some treasured family photos, a box of letters from my grandma, and my Bible, and for sure my wedding ring. These simple possessions reflect what I value most in my life, my faith, my family, my marriage. You know, when you get right down to it, there aren't many things in life that you really need, but we spend so much money on material possessions that are based on our wants. Remember that God tells you not to store up treasures here on earth. They distract you from the spiritual treasures he has to offer, like being a blessing to others. So the next time you're tempted to buy something you really don't need, think about what you value and what you already have. And then consider if there's something different you could do with the money, something that helps you live out your faith. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Joining me now is uh, Hunter Baker from Union University. He and I like to have conversations at the intersection of what I will describe as politics and ethics, the Christian faith, and what's happening in the world. Hunter, welcome back. Hi there. Happy to be with you. Hi. I'm happy that you're here. Okay, so um, yesterday was Congress's first day back after a two-week recess and the impeachment inquiry actually carried on while many of them were out of town, and it pressed forward yesterday. So I'm just going to really quickly bring people up to speed on what happened just yesterday. Uh, maybe the first key uh, is something that actually hasn't happened and does not look like it's going to happen anytime soon. There will be no impeachment vote of any kind in the House of Representatives. There was a closed-door meeting yesterday uh, that led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with her caucus. And they are not going to have a full vote authorizing a formal impeachment inquiry. Um, Rudy Giuliani does not plan to comply. uh, And witnesses are continuing to testify uh, in closed door meetings with the House committees that are running this impeachment inquiry. So just from a Christian worldview, um, how should we be thinking about this process and um, and why, as Christians, are we committed to the truth, no matter how long it takes to discover it and no matter where it leads? Uh, well, I mean, that's there's no question that that's correct, uh, that we should not be looking at this uh, situation, uh, you know, rah-rah Donald Trump or anything like that. Uh, we should want the truth. I the One of the things that has disturbed me as I look at uh, everything I read about Ukraine <clears throat> is that it seems to me that politicians in both parties uh, and um, and campaign consultants uh, and various fixers have taken advantage of Ukraine's vulnerability. Uh, Ukraine needs protection from Russia. Uh, they're in a very vulnerable position. Um, and I, it just looks to me like a lot of Western politicians have 
leveraged that situation to enrich themselves uh, and or uh, achieve influence in various ways. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about this is I, I look at Hunter Biden. Uh, Hunter Biden was kicked out of the Navy for cocaine abuse and within about two or three months was on the board of a Ukrainian company making $50,000 a month. Uh, now, people don't normally do that sort of thing unless there's something to be gained from it. And you, you see similar things on both sides of the aisle. <clears throat> so uh, I, think that, I think that it's important to find out what's been going on in Ukraine, and I think that it's much bigger uh, really than Donald Trump. All right. So let's use that as our segue to a conversation about what Joe Biden said last night um, in the, you know, in the Democratic debate, 12 people on the stage. He specifically asked this question. He says, my son did nothing wrong. I'm curious. I know that where I live, $50,000 a month is um, crazy money. Uh, The average American family, not the not individuals, but the average American family is getting by on something like $65,000 a year, a year. And so how does it play out there in the culture for any Democratic candidate, any candidate whatsoever, to suggest that $50,000 a month is a legitimate fee to be paid to a person who has no qualifications other than his name and his relationship to, you know, a well-positioned parent? Like, how does that play in, in, in the rest of America? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a totally different uh, group in society. It's uh, uh, you know, I, and I, I think that there was concern. Uh, you know, as I listened to uh, uh, Hunter Biden's interview, he talked about how his his father uh, kind of said something to him about it, and he said, "Well, you know, I won't tell you about my business, and you don't ask me about." My business, you know, something like that, right? As though that was ethically reassuring. Uh, <laughs> the 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 idea that um, you take a a uh, a political situation like Ukraine is in, and um, and you look at Hunter Biden, and you look at uh, at him getting a position like that uh, at a time when his father was vice president, that's it's highly suspect. Uh, now, it doesn't mean that Joe Biden was guilty of anything. But it certainly seems to be the case that somebody was trying to gain influence by hiring Hunter Biden, unless you think he's just that much of an expert on oil and gas or something of that nature. Yeah, I yeah. Which mm-hmm. okay, um, let's uh, let's do one um, one observation maybe from last night's Democratic debate. Uh, you got one takeaway you want to start with? Well, I actually had to be at a scholarship banquet for Union oh, University wow. last night. Well, fantastic! Uh, That's have... exciting. Oh yeah, yeah. What we, are we? Um... What, what kind of money are we get? What are we? What are we? Uh, what are we scholarshiping? <laughs> what are we doing? What's happening over there? We're, we're trying to we're trying to get money uh, so that so that students can can get a Christian higher education without going deeply into debt. Oh, we're raising uh, know, we're raising know, money for we're raising oh, money. I love that. Absolutely, oh, I yeah. love that. Okay, that's awesome. All right, well, let me just share with you that um, Elizabeth Warren got treated like the front runner. So when yep. you are uh, when you are reading and watching later today what happened, um, that would be my number one takeaway. Elizabeth Warren was definitely treated as the front runner, um, uh, but I will say that. Uh, Right at the end of the debate, you may not know this yet, but this is what I'm going to ask you to uh, 
to comment on maybe. Um, CNN basically reported that Bernie Sanders had won the debate, not because of anything that happened in the debate, but because right at the end, uh, in the final moments of the debate, the Washington Post broke the news that New York freshman Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez plans to endorse Bernie Sanders. And then uh, CNN reported the other members of the so-called squad, uh, Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar and Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib, are also going to endorse Sanders. And then Democratic strategists went wild, saying that last night's AOC endorsement would be second only to the endorsement of the Obamas in the 2020 Democratic primary. Uh, uh, What does that tell you, this freshman congresswoman, um, with no political experience uh, other than she now serves in Congress. Um, uh, what does that tell you that her endorsement is regarded as second only to the immediate past president of the United States? I, I would you've certainly got my interest. Let's say that, uh, you know, and by the way, that's another thing. It's it's very strange that Joe Biden does not have Barack Obama's um, support. Uh, that's that's a big deal. Um, whether or not AOC and the squad will propel Bernie is another question. I'm I'm guessing that this will show that their influence is smaller than people think. I, I think that it will not propel Bernie to the top. Um, I do think that Elizabeth Warren is the eventual nominee. I do, too. All right. With that. Hey, Paul, I know it's like a minute early, but I want to go to a break so that when we come back, we can like have the have our whole conversation about the CNN Equality Town Hall in one in one segment. So uh, Hunter Baker and I are going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to pull some threads from the CNN Equality Town Hall last Thursday night. Um, and we are going to uh, we're going to talk about the rapid pace of change in our culture related to um, sexuality, marriage and gender identity. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, Hunter Baker and I uh, are chatting this morning. He from Union University, me from a little bit, uh, 100 miles east of him in Middle Tennessee. Paul Perot is the only one in the studio Thankfully, pushing our buttons up in the Twin Cities this that morning. That just sounds so, so wrong when you say it that it's way. So <laughs> true, though. So just saying. true. So true. Okay, so Hunter, um, the CNN Equality Town Hall last Thursday night. We have actually spent a little time this morning um, touching on Beto O'Rourke's uh, comments related to potentially stripping all Christian institutions of every kind, including uh, churches, and I would also then assume any any faithful Muslim organizations out there that abide by the teaching of their faith in relationship to marriage being between one man and one woman. We've we've talked a little bit about that. What we haven't talked about um, is, first of all, how how fast this is moving in the culture, and um, you know, like where where this is. Like, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. This is actually the groundwork for this particular argument was laid in the oral arguments before the Supreme Court in 2015. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I have seen this come in for 20 years. Um, I was uh, I was lobbying for the Religious Liberty Protection Act back in 1999, began working on it in 1998. And um, as soon as I realized that the primary opponents of the Religious Liberty Protection Act uh, were various gay organizations, I realized, oh no, uh, 
they see religious liberty as essentially a pretext for bigotry. And uh, and so so once I realized that was the case, I knew that it was just a matter of time uh, before the court's jurisprudence would move in this direction. And that's exactly what has happened. And, and so so as soon as you see opposition to gay marriage as nothing more than bigotry and discrimination, uh, then essentially faithful Christians, um, you know, adhering to uh, thousands of years of teaching through the Old Testament and New Testament are cast in the position of essentially the KKK or uh, advocates of Jim Crow or, or however you want to put it. Uh, you're in a you're in a terrible position. Uh, you are the oppressor. Uh, you are the person with irrational hatred. And from their perspective, there is no reason to dignify that in any way, shape or form, uh, not by listening to your arguments, not by giving you a respectful hearing and certainly not by allowing you to keep your tax exemption. All right. So they're going to be um, they're going to be people who sort of respond in what I would just describe as reasonable fear and yeah. anxiety related to this. Um it's very difficult to anticipate um, what might happen if, in fact, uh, let's just say Democrats are able to uh, not only retain their majority in the House, but win a majority in the Senate and win the White House. Like, right, it's really difficult on this particular front, except that we would be able to confidently say the Equality Act, H.R. 5, now before uh, and it's been approved by the House, would, would almost certainly become the law of the land. That functionally does what Beto O'Rourke is talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that is disturbing to me is that it would not even require a legislative act Mm. uh, to go in this direction. I mean, um, if you think about the difficulty that the uh, Health and Human Services mandate a few years ago posed Mm. for various uh, religious organizations, that was simply – that was not an executive order. That was simply an an ordinary regulation issued by the department. And if uh, that's why so many Christians, you know, evangelicals are often castigated for uh, for voting for Donald Trump. Uh, But for a lot of people, uh, it was simply a matter of trying to prevent uh, those sorts of regulations from rolling out of uh, rolling out of an executive branch headed by somebody who's hostile to the faith. Uh, you know, I, I have never thought that Donald Trump was uh, was an exemplary Christian or, or necessarily a Christian at all. Uh, but one of the virtues is he seems to be indifferent <laughs> to going after Christian organizations. Uh, so that's <laughs> that's a bit of a virtue in a time like this. Uh, but, yeah, it, it, the whole thing is is very close. Um, I had hoped that. Uh, that Trump winning the presidency would allow the culture time to kind of cool down in the wake of the Obergfell decision, and that essentially uh, folks in the gay rights camp would say, look, you know, we won, we got our big court decision, and uh, and now we can kind of enjoy the victory, but that's not the case. There's been more of a a movement to push forward and to marginalize Christians who oppose gay marriage. Um, certainly, religious liberty, religious freedom are 
uh, on on the forefront of uh, they're on the front burner. They're front burner issues for the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. It's a, certainly a front burner issue for Attorney General Bill Barr. I mean, we hear it, I think it's a front burner issue for the president. I feel like the speech that he gave at the United Nations. Um, I mean, I feel like certainly when we're talking about uh, religious minorities around the globe, the president does seem to have a pretty robust understanding of uh, of how that is working itself out. I, he's at least a, a secular pluralist in terms of the way this ought to work. People ought to be genuinely free to believe and then practice their beliefs in a way, um, you know, in a way that is not coerced by the government. And so when we talk about this contest, this showdown that is happening now and is likely, you know, very certainly going to continue here in the United States of America between those who would say um, religious liberty is sacrosanct. You can't this is not a liberty upon which you can. Um, stomp around and use the coercive power of the government to make people believe and act in ways that are inconsistent with their sincerely held beliefs. But that is what's being proposed by LGBTQ sexual orientation, gender identity activists. Well, I mean, let's understand. I, I think that religious liberty is is actually uh, scriptural. I think that uh, I think that um, when Jesus is reflecting on the image of, of Caesar on the money, uh, you know, render unto God what is God's and Caesar what is Caesar's, he's inherently uh, uh, expressing that view that not everything belongs to the government, certainly not your religious faith. Uh, but we also have to understand that religious liberty is the exception rather than the rule in history. Typically, the state wants to control religion, and it has been our very great blessing to live in a period where, uh, where particularly the United States, as the pioneer, uh, embraced religious liberty and, and prospered because of it. Uh, but we're, we're going through kind of a reversion to the mean. I mean, there are people who see the opportunity to, to reassert state control over these sorts of things, and they are, they are rolling with it. All right. So um, for those who would argue that it is appropriate for um, churches to pay taxes because of the argument uh, of the separation of church and state, I I view that as absolutely the opposite of the way it is supposed to work. Taxation is the coercive power of the government. Um, That's right. Okay, so I I just wanted to clarify that before I answer somebody on Twitter. in relationship, yeah. Now, there's there was a great book. There was a great book written on that topic by Dean Kelly, uh, probably uh, it's probably forty years ago or more now, uh, on why churches shouldn't pay taxes. But yes, it has to do with uh, the independence. Uh, so churches, it, it's true. You know, churches were often tied up with the state. Um, the state would collect the tithes for the churches. The state would force people to be members of the churches. But part of the separation of church and state was was to was to uh, make an institutional separation of church and state um, to sever those financial ties, but also to give the church a degree of independence from that coercive power of the state, uh, particularly with regard to taxation. Taxation could be an incredible tool uh, against the church, especially if the state were hostile. Uh, so, yeah, the independence of the church is critically important, uh, as is the separation of church and state rightly understood. 
Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. You're always so helpful. You help clarify uh, the things that we must be thinking about and the conversations we must enter into. Hunter Baker from Union University, thanks so much for being with us. We look forward to the next Thank time. Thank you. Thanks. All right. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, so uh, some of you are asking on Twitter more about that conversation uh, at the intersection of the church and the state and taxation and separation. And so uh, I promise we will continue to till that soil. We will bring positive resources to bear on that conversation. In fact, uh, tomorrow uh, I will air a conversation that I'm going to record later today with John and Nazu. Um, and we're going to talk uh, more specifically about this uh, about this topic. So. Don't miss tomorrow's show. Um, And continue to text me your questions. What's our phone number? 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. You can always text me during the show. Always watching our text line. Um, And you can always email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. And, yes, I heard the comment about the faith of the president. And let me just circle back around to that and say this. I'm not going to judge um, someone's faith. I am going to judge someone's behavior and the outward expression of it. So let's just be mindful of that as we continue to have the conversations, um, sober conversations in the culture today at the intersection of faith and politics. Uh, Up next, Bill English and I are going to continue our conversation about the leadership lessons we learned from the life of David. Actually, we're going to wind that up today. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.